You are listening to The Dish on Health IT, brought to you by Point of Care Partners, a leading health IT consultancy. Each episode will feature a rotating panel of senior consultants and guests who will talk about trends and innovations in health IT, while also highlighting how organizations can leverage these advances to solve their business problems. This episode's guest is Dr. Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer of Health Gorilla, a member of ONC's Health Information Technology Advisory Committee, or HITECH, and longtime advocate for interoperability. Today's episode will cover the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, or TEFCA, information sharing, different perspectives he's gained from working with both a large health system and now a health IT company, in addition to discussing the cycle of innovation and the role of policy. We hope you find today's episode informative and helpful. If you have topic ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, be sure to share them with us by emailing us at podcast at POCP.com or tweeting us at POCPHIT. If you enjoy the health IT insights you get from listening to the Dish on Health IT podcast, be sure to subscribe to the Point of Care Partners HIT Perspectives quarterly newsletter by visiting POCP.com slash subscribe dash HIT dash perspectives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dish on Health IT, where we invite health IT innovators and catalysts to break down and discuss some of health IT's biggest news and most exciting milestones. We at Point of Care Partners are health IT consultants who work with stakeholders across the healthcare ecosystem and are viewed as an independent trusted party, like Switzerland. I'm Pooja Babra, Senior Consultant and Pharmacy and PBM Practice Lead, and I'll be your host for this episode, filling in for Ken Kleinberg, who's out on vacation. My colleague and co-host, Jocelyn Keegan, and I are thrilled to welcome our special guest, Dr. Stephen Lane, Chief Medical Officer with Health Gorilla. We'll be asking Dr. Lane about TEFCA, information blocking, or rather information sharing, his transition from being part of a large health system to joining Health Gorilla, and the different perspectives on innovation and change that come with operating in these very different organizations. We'll also be talking about the cycle of innovation and the role of policy. So before we jump into our discussion, I'd like to actually have Jocelyn briefly introduce herself and tell us what she is looking forward to learning from today's discussion. Joss? Uh, thanks, Pooja. Super excited uh, to have Stephen Lane here with us today. I'm Jocelyn Keegan. I'm our payer practice lead devoted to positive change and in general, just getting stuff done. My focus here at Point of Care Partners is on interoperability, prior auths, really the convergence of where technology standards and product strategy come into play. And in addition, I'm the program manager for one of the HL7 initiatives, DaVinci, where we're really bringing to life the ability to be able to leverage emerging standards like FHIR to um, solve problems between payers and providers. There's nobody better suited to join us today to really talk about the intersection of existing clinical data exchange, the promise of TEPCA, and how that's going to mash up with fire in the coming months and weeks and uh, years ahead. So uh, excited to dive into apparently all of the topics today that we're going to cover with uh, Dr. Lane. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Joss. And yes, we have, a, we have a full agenda for sure. So now let's meet our guest, Dr. Stephen Lane, uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health Gorilla and also member of the Health Information Technology Advisory Committee, or better known as HITAC, and longtime advocate really for interoperability. So Dr. Lane, can you uh, briefly introduce yourself? Sure. And thank you so much for the chance to, to meet with you all today. I'm looking forward for, to a lively uh, trialogue, if you will. Um, so uh, I am a clinician. That, that's really how I self-identify and what has brought me to, to all of this work in the health IT space. I, you know, been practicing medicine for over 35 years, really started looking at health IT with the promise of getting clinical decision support for myself and my colleagues. Started using an EHR back in 1989. That was a long time ago. Worked on EHR implementation, you know, through the 1990s and we went live you know, in the late 90s, with, I was on Epic from, from the get-go in my current practice. Spent the 2000s doing optimization and scaling EHR. We implemented the very first patient portal connected to an EHR back in 2001. Uh, and then really transitioned to a focus on interoperability about 10 or 15 years ago. So it's been a great journey. I've had a lot of opportunities to engage in the industry, I think more than most practicing primary care physicians. You know, I had a chance to work with the Certification Commission for Health IT starting back in 2005, 
You know, when Epic brought out Care Everywhere in 2008, I got very excited about that because my patients, when they went in the hospital, ended up going to another system for hospitalization. So interoperability was central to my ability to, to take care of my, my folks. So started focusing first on local and then regional collaboration. Uh, we started a local regional user group, which ended up becoming sort of a best practice across the Epic community. Um, in the 2010s, I had a chance to work with the state of California on a number of their you know, health IT initiatives. And then I was invited to become a member of the board of a local HIE in our region. So started to learn more about that, got involved with the state of California Office of uh, Health Information Integrity and the Association of HIEs. So just really kind of got pulled in you know, by the stream of opportunities. And, and, you know, and, and we can talk about this later, you know, how do you get clinicians, you know, and provider organizations involved. But, you know, but what happened to me in the, the mid-2010s, I got invited to be on an ONC task force, got involved in direct trust, the Care Everywhere Governing Council, got onto the Care Equality Steering Committee, the Sequoia Project Board, you know, m- many of which are, you know, opportunities that I've just continued to pursue. And then in 2016, I got appointed to high tech, as you said, sort of the first class of high tech. And that has been a wonderful experience, you know, to get really involved in ONC, HHS, how the rules are made. I've had the chance to work on and, and help lead a number of task forces, really been very engaged in the advancement of the U.S. core data for interoperability have been on you know every one of those task forces and for the last couple of years has co-chaired the groups that are helping to advance that. So along the way, I met Jocelyn, uh, got invited to uh, get onto the Da Vinci Steering Committee. We started a clinical advisory council in Da Vinci uh, that I'm still involved in. And then I've also uh, been involved more recently in a number of efforts around interoperability measurement, uh, both with CLASS and with ONC. And then also there's a California data exchange framework, sort of a regional version of Tefka, perhaps, depending on how you how you define things uh, that I've been involved in. So, I mean, I'm very excited about interoperability, you know, and what it can do for us. And I think that what we're talking about here, we're talking about FIRE, we're talking about Tefka, we're talking about really the current state, you know, what's happening right now. But I mean, but why interoperability? You know, why do I as a clinician find this so important? You know, you hear some clinicians complaining. It's like, I've got too much information. I'm drowning in data. You know, it's not organized. It's not useful. But truly, when I think about interoperability, I think about the quintuple aim in healthcare, you know, and this started as the triple aim, and then it grew into the quadruple and the quintuple. But the idea is that if we're going to fix healthcare in this country, if we're going to make it better, make it more um, efficient and cost effective, we need to focus on first improving the health of our population, second on improving the value of the care we provide, you know, lowering the per capita cost, third on the experience of the patients that are receiving the care, and as well as on the providers who are giving the care. We've all been hearing about burnout, you know, and uh, and that's critical. And then the fifth aim in the quintuple aim is, is equity. You know, how can we, you know, improve the equity of distribution of health and, as we'll discuss, health data and health technology. So I think, you know, as I was you know, preparing, looking, staring at my 35th anniversary and my continuity practice recently, I was ready for a change. I was ready to dig in deeper. I really wanted to go all in and help to see Tefka get up and running. You know, in, at high tech, I've been involved in the genesis of these ideas. And truly, you know, in a health system, you can only do so much. So it was a chance for me to really work on fulfilling the promise of Tefka. And, uh, and you know, and I've, I've met the people at Health Gorilla because, of course, we exchanged using their platform and some of their interoperability tools. So uh, I had a good familiarity with them when it was time to, to find something different to do. Great. What an amazing background. And I love, you know, just so important to have clinicians involved with everything we do. So uh, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Lane. So uh, before we jump into all the topics that we just touched on, I would love to he- just have you share with our audience a little bit more about Health Gorilla, uh, you know, the mission and vision, and then we can dive into some of the topics. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, HealthGorilla is an interesting company. They've got a, an interesting name, you know, <laughs> but uh, they uh, really started initially focusing on addressing provider burden uh, in the area of, of laboratory orders and results. So that, that was the first task. It's, it's interesting. The, uh, the founder, the CEO and one of the co-founders has a physician spouse and and she struggled with, with in private practice with lab orders and results and he was like I'm a technologist I can fix this problem so they did that you know they they built a really nice platform to support lab orders and results and then they they saw that as a starting place to really look at more general uh health data interoperability challenges and in the process what they did was they they chose an architecture uh to build a platform and to aggregate the data that they they were exchanging uh, and that's really important because uh, what it did was it allowed them to really build a private HIE. You know, we have a lot of history in this country with HIEs, mostly regional, some at the enterprise level, and, and this one is private. So they, they built a, a very robust record locator service, a master patient index. And then, and then the approach that they've taken is to aggregate, to normalize, deduplicate, and enrich the data to really produce a longitudinal record for every, every individual uh, so the primary focus really is on optimizing data quality, uh, data utility, and completeness. And this is a similar approach to what a lot of the regional HIEs do. Um, it's also similar to what enterprise um, HIEs have done and some of the public data platforms that are out there. So you think about the Mayo Clinic platform, the Epic Cosmos research platform, the NIH's All of Us research database, all of those are are really building longitudinal records of diverse data sets to try to meet particular needs. But the idea with Health Gorilla is it's not specific to a customer population, to a use case, to you know, research, et cetera. It's really meant to be much broader to reach a more generalized utility capability. So what they did, you know, based on that architecture was they went out and they connected to all the nationwide networks. So Commonwealth, eHealth Exchange, they once Care Equality uh, came online, they were able to connect to the Epic Care Everywhere network, and they've also offered direct messaging through third-party HISPs. So really trying to create that, that single on-ramp within their health information network, their HIN, in the same way that what we, we've been trying to do with the QHINs in, under the auspices of TEFCA. They are also already supporting the technology under one uh, regional health information exchange in Puerto Rico and working on bringing on others. But I think the real, what I found special about Health Gorilla, it was a real commitment to innovation, a real commitment to bringing in more data types, SDOH, medication history, claims, wearables, patient-generated health data, and bringing all of that together into a single database to, to address many uh, use cases and clinical needs. That's great. Fantastic. So um, let's pull a little bit on the Tefka and QHIN thread. So I want to talk with you first about Tefka. So uh, for those that, that may not know, Tefka is the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. So can you tell us a little bit more about your view of Tefka and um, why Health Gorilla decided to become a QN? You touched a little bit on the introduction, but if you can dive a little bit more detail, that'd be great. Yeah, so so TEFCA, as you say, it's it's a lousy acronym, but it's a great concept. You know, the idea that we are going to have a single nationwide framework for the trusted exchange of health data, and and certainly part of that is is to have a common agreement so that everybody's on the same page and we have a common set of rules of the road. So as I said, one of the things that I've been, you know, TEFCA was identified as a need in the 21st Century Cures Act, you know, which is now eight years old, I think. And it's really one of the major pillars of what the ONC has been working on all this time. And really, the high tech was also one of the things that was called for in the Cures Act. You know, so so we our committee was put together really at the same time that the idea, the first version of Tefka and the architecture of that came along. I see Tefka, you know, having been involved in so many interop initiatives over the years all of which have done amazing things, but you still, when you listen, you hear people complaining all the time. Interop's not a thing. I can't get the data. You know, I can't accomplish the goals I need. You know, this is what Da Vinci is focused on. This is what other efforts are focused on. So the idea that came out of 21st Century Cures is, okay, you know, the industry's had a chance to do this on their own and they haven't really gotten there. 
lots of people went and complained to Congress that they couldn't get the data they needed and the form and format, et cetera, to make it useful for them. So they said, okay, you know, HHS, you, you got to either, you know, find a trusted exchange framework and designate it as the national standard, or you got to build one. And they chose the latter course. They chose to start over because care equality, again, is that. I mean, it is a framework. It's It's primarily focused on query as opposed to push, which is largely managed under the framework of the direct trust group. But the idea with TEFCA was a single on-ramp that would would support all different sorts of interoperability, different use cases, different data types, different stakeholder communities. And uh, so that's that's what TEFCA is going to be. It, uh, you know, it's been a slow process. I've, I've had to learn real patience over the course of my career. Things don't change as quickly as you'd hope. But what was exciting is with the announcement of TEFCA, Health Gorilla, the, the leadership, made a public commitment to apply to be one of the first qualified health information networks or QHINs, really sort of signaling um, the willingness for them to participate in, the, in this diverse community of public private, regional, national groups who who could uh, clarify and really bring this to fruition. So there, uh, you know, that that really impressed me that, you know, that this group wanted to be a QHIN. I wanted to help make QHINs come to life and and move it forward. You know, it's interesting, though, because as I've dug into this and learned more, I mean, that was a big deal for a private company basically to invite government oversight. To say I, I'm opting in to something that's going to really require me to do all sorts of very particular tasks with regard to privacy, security, governance, you know, uh, following these rules of the road. I think most of the entities that have been looking at becoming QHINs have that kind of experience. You know, you've got either you know big health information exchange organizations or you've got you know big networks that have a lot of experience and that's the goal is to really have a limited number of QHINs that have real firepower to be able to get this through um, but I, again at the at health gorilla you know we've had to go through and, and completely visit you know how are we doing network governance what is the state of our privacy and security and compliance and I think it's really making the, the company that much stronger uh, and and their product offerings that much better uh, but I think what's pretty unique about health gorilla's approach here is there's a real commitment to supporting the broad range of use cases and and user communities so looking at serving as a health data utility uh, for public health data and other purposes within regional HIEs uh, and just regions generally porting this public health data exchange in, in its various formats. You know, who's going to bring on community-based social services? Who's going to manage payer-provider exchange? You know, what one of the, Health Gorilla, I think, was one of the first, was the first and perhaps now one of two candidate QHIN organizations that have said we really want to support individual access services in the sense of having individuals be able to query for data across the, the, the framework. So that's exciting, you know, that, that broad view of this. And then also, there are different technical architectures. You know, some QHINs are just going to, you know, be the, the operator exchange switchboard. You know, I've got this data it wants to go over here, I'm going to plug it in, and then I'm going to, you know, I'm out of there. You know, I'm, I'm just going to be the pipes for moving it. And some are going to provide a platform and, and are going to aggregate the data as it flows. And that's what Health Gorilla has been doing historically to serve the needs of its network participants. And I think it's a great opportunity, you know, as we move into TEFCA exchange to have at least some of the, the QHINs playing that role. So I think that's going to be a key differentiator. But, you know, as a data aggregator and a platform, you know, you're then going to be able to build out this repository. And the goal at the company is, is to essentially build the largest nationwide repository of the most diverse high quality and useful health data. So, I mean, it's a pretty audacious goal. Um, I, I've heard other companies say they wanted to do something similar. So we'll, we'll see how, how that goes. And, you know, it's interesting when we were talking before this meeting, I was sharing that the vision that, you know, being a QHIN is kind of like being the operator of a dance studio, right? I mean, you open a studio, you, you create this safe, supportive, 
reliable space for people to come and then people can come and they can dance and you know they might be individuals they might be a couple they might be a dance troupe it might be uh you know any number of things and they can come and they can do different kinds of dance you know they might be doing flamenco or ballet or having a rave you know it could be you know but the point is you create you invite creativity into the space and then there are certain rules of engagement you know it's got to be safe it's got to be secure Let's dance. I love that analogy. What a great one. And there's a couple of things that you mentioned, right? The the community-based organizations, the social determinants of health, medication, you know, those are topics that you don't often hear, right? I mean, of course, there, we know this data that has to be exchanged and entities that need to be exchanged, you know, that have to have that information as well. So I think that's great. So it sounds like you're really seeing kind of becoming QHIN as a, as a means to innovate. Is that an accurate uh, statement? Yep. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there, TEFCA creates a framework which invites in many different stakeholders or participants. Some of those are already, you know, well connected to the national interoperability framework that's out there, right? I mean, big providers certainly are well connected. You know, we, we've pretty much done our job with care equality, bring people on. I mean, direct messaging is available to any provider using a uh, certified EHR, but many of them don't use it uh, or don't use it effectively. So again, I think there's a great opportunity to sort of build on the momentum of this single on-ramp, this federally supported infrastructure to really do some serious innovation and bring bring in, as I say, more, more communities of users and, of course, more use cases. I mean, what we've seen is a lot of use of, you know, IHE query-based document exchange to support treatment use cases. That's like, we, we got that, you know. There's still some people that need to be brought along even to that. There's no question that there's a, a lagging tail there, but, but that use case is pretty well established. But, you know, payment, healthcare operations, benefits determination, all of these have been, you know, called out as, as real needs across our industry. And this is the direction that TEFCA is going to be going in and really providing lots of opportunities for innovation. I, I think that public health is a crying need for innovation in terms of interoperability. I've had the chance to be involved in a number of task forces looking at data modernization for public health. And, and I seriously hope that TEFCA is going to move quickly in that, in that direction. And then, of course, as I say, we've done a lot with document exchange, but FIRE, while, you know, I think it last year passed its 10th anniversary, you know, it's it's sort of becoming coming of age, if you will, uh, it's still not widely implemented. I think certainly amongst provider organizations, while all of them now have the capability to do fire exchange, a lot of them, if they're doing it, it's very, it's very limited. And I think that the fire roadmap of TEFCA is really going to kind of entrain the enthusiasm of the fire community and allow us to move that along in as a part of the TEFCA advancement. Great. So let's um, let's continue on that thread, actually, and talk a little bit about TEFCA and the FIRE Roadmap. So there was recently the TEFCA FIRE Implementation Guide, and I think that was a little bit more of guidance, right, rather than an actual implementation guide. But some of the comments um, on that implementation guide indicated that some feel that there isn't enough alignment between TEFCA and FIRE uh, and, you know, even the fire community, actually, and even with the roadmap. So um, I know we're, we're kind of uh, talking about the roadmap. We'd love to get your thoughts kind of on that and just what you think about that. Well, I know a lot of people were pretty disappointed when the TEFCA first came out, you know, the, the final version of it, that fire was not called for in the initial implementation. I mean, as you say, there there is a large and diverse community of people supporting the advancement of fire, and, and they've been doing this for, for a decade now, as we said. And uh, and there are, there's been a tremendous amount of work done. And not all of that work has been picked up yet in the FIRE roadmap uh, as it's been published by the RCE you know, and ONC. I, I think the fact that we have a roadmap is wonderful. The fact that there is acknowledgement that FIRE can be utilized 
from the get-go, you know, for, as soon as Tefka is live, Fire as a content standard, you know, can be utilized by the QHINs and supporting exchange within those those networks. Um, and then they very quickly see an advancement to what they're calling uh, network facilitated fire exchange and the network brokered fire exchange. So I think the idea with facilitated is is basically you you leverage the the Tefka directory uh, and to find the endpoints to be able to then you know do a little matchmaking you know going back to our our dance our dance studio analogy you know you can introduce couples and let them dance together you know but that's not the same as a, a full on uh, you know performance right where where in the stage three where they're talking about the QHINs actually brokering the Fire API exchange um, and making that available. But as you can see by the roadmap, this is this is quick. Now, you, you mentioned that this was set out for comment. You know, there were 16 organizations that presented, uh, that provided commentary back to, back to the RCE on this. And they were very diverse. I mean, there were large provider organizations. There were, you know, large and not so large EHR and other health IT vendors, a couple of public health departments, you know, the HL7 Fire at Scale Task Force. There was a, a HISP in there and others. So a lot of people are paying attention, you know, and this, this level of engagement, I think, is, is very exciting. I think one of the concerns you know we have we have had as Tefka has rolled out is will people you know if you build it will they come and it's very exciting to see that people are coming people are paying attention people are weighing in and clearly the commenters had a lot of knowledge about fire you know the the comments were very detailed you know challenges about how to scale this especially when you're with registering and managing endpoints how is that going to change as individual patients get fire you know endpoints or utilize fire endpoints how are we going to keep up with that you know a lot of comments about the the need to align with and work on other standards and documentation and implementation guides that the that have come out of the fire community and then I think concerns on the part of the vendors about, you know, what do you want me to work on, right? I mean, how do how are they going to prioritize the use of, of document exchange versus fire exchange for each of these use cases as they come on? Because the truth is the industry players can only move so fast, right? I mean, when you're just talking about the Wild West of, of industry, you can have this over here and that over there. But, but when we're talking about Tefka exchange, there are going to be requirements for everyone to be able to meet a certain bar, uh, and I think they're being very thoughtful, you know, in the RCE as they're bringing out the, the various uh, guiding documents as to how how to do that in a way that this will succeed. But uh, it was great to see all the comments that came in about this. Yeah, absolutely. So, Joss, I'd love to bring you in the conversation here and hear, you know, what are you hearing from the Fire Accelerator community related to TEFCA and Fire? Yeah, I, I'm with Stephen. I think the fact that we're starting to see, you know, the actual emergence of an actual roadmap of fire inside of um, Tefka, I think is incredibly important. I would even say over the course of 2022, I think we saw so much more traction with it sort of being this conceptual to, okay, how do we actually put all of these building blocks together and start to make this real. I think there's a there's a couple elephants in the room, I think that Stephen alluded to earlier in his conversation around, you know, how do we really move beyond just this idea of um, sharing data for, you know, for treatment and into payment and operations. And there's been, a, I would say, a cultural shift and mindset around that. I think as TEFCA, it, as, uh, as the clinical data exchange has increased in the industry and people have seen the benefit of being able to get that information. And so I think there's kind of two worlds we're, we're looking at. I think one of the things that was great from my perspective was sitting at Care Quality and Sequoia and the Health Exchange last month and listen to sort of from the stage a cacophony of voices that were really talking about how to make this roadmap a reality and how to start, you know, the, the sort of the mentions of DaVinci and FAST from the stage, I think were surprising even for somebody who's living in it on a day-to-day -day basis that, you know, people understand that sort of making, at least getting to that transport stage initially, you know, where that package itself can be fired and take advantage of sort of the brain trust that's gone to create some of these implementation guides that are use case based in the industry. And then the alignment around scaling and, and really pulling from the progress that's coming out of the fast community. And I'd say from a, from a community perspective, if I were going to, 
sort of cut across conversations happening at HL7 and the different accelerators that POCP is engaged in, I think that idea of people looking for the messaging and the in the images and and the voiceover that showed there was effort behind it, I think has gotten, I think, really positive feedback in the last month or two. I would say if you had had this conversation with Stephen and I back in June or July, I think people would have said there was a lot of talking, but we're not actually sort of seeing the 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 actual alignment in action. So with the with this first, and I, I think you're right, the the guidance document around how to start to use fire building blocks inside of TEPCA, I think is a really good first step in progress. I think we're starting to see with the publishment publishing of that document, uh, I think a more openness to sharing information sort of earlier and getting feedback that makes it a little bit more akin to how some of the other standards organizations are working today. So I think those are all positive. I would say sort of my biggest takeaway and the sort of reverb that I'm hearing from folks is, is we've seen progress at the at the the point-to-point connections with fire, right? Folks that are out in the industry developing apps today, setting up their fire servers, working with that first, you know, two or three partners to do some of this more complex user story-based clinical data exchange or or clinical decision support, administrative decision support and workflow is people picking their head up and saying, how can I now open up basically beyond just point to point and start to really get the advantage of that network effect. And my one of my big takeaways and the questions we're starting to ask in the DaVinci community is this idea of like, okay, how important is not just getting your first five, you know, sort of instances of different IGs up and running point to point to people, but hey guys, who's going to raise their hand and start to be those first pilot sites with some of the queue hands or with some of the existing network connections that are in place because they're out there, right? And and you can get that ROI on that investment and that point to point over and over again and walk into and take advantage of, you know, sort of the 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 business aspect of trust being settled in so many of these different opportunities, you know, whether it be through a partner like Health Gorilla or through one of the existing networks like Commonwealth or Care Quality. You know, I, I think that I, I often think in terms of like the way we're going to solve for making this roadmap real is literally people picking up their hands, raising them, getting involved and actually showing how it's going to work. And, you know, you, you and I have been talking for the last year or so, you know, I think so much of what we're going to see over the next year, is not necessarily, you know, who has the technically best complete solution, but who executes the best in this market to really provide that differentiated service that meets people where they are in reality, right? That, Maybe some of the really good technology that we've had in the market in previous years hasn't met the business problem head on or had the traction or the execution engine behind it to really meet people where they are in reality. And and I think, you know, in the conversations I've gotten to have with Stephen and and some of his new colleagues, you know, people that really understand, you know, there is a place for document-based exchange today. There's a ton of it happening, but people understand getting to sort of that codified resource-based data is going to be really critically important to us to get to the promise of full automation and that burden reduction, right, both on patients and payers and providers, you know, to make workflows really disappear behind the scenes like many of our administrative transactions do today. Yeah. You know, one thing I'd like to point out to in response, Jocelyn, is that, uh, you know, we don't have to wait for this FIRE roadmap to play itself out inside right. of Tefco. I mean, Care Quality today has a fire implementation guide that we've been working on, gosh, for a couple of years now, that is just about ready to go, you know, out into the public realm. And I think that's one of the one of the benefits of the decision that was made by HHS to to start TEFCA while allowing care equality to to continue its work is that we can pilot things you know in within the existing framework of care equality and then try to work out some of the bugs before it becomes a requirement under or an option under TEFCA so i i, I don't want people to think that you have to wait until right. 2024 to do this stuff yeah no that's a great call out and you know just seeing all this activity run in parallel, right? And that's that's what we're starting to see. And it will be interesting to see, you know, how Sequoia and as the recognized uh, coordinating entity does decide, right, how to engage more closely with the accelerators where some of this is happening, right? People are picking up the implementation guides. People are implementing FIRE. So that's a great call out. Thank you for that. So I'm going to have us uh, shift gears a little bit. And 
Talk about the transition um, that you went through. Uh, you know, I know you were working for Sutter Health, which is a very large health system. All of a sudden, you're working on the health IT side. Of course, you know, you were doing health IT work, et cetera, as well. But I'm sure it's, it's, it's a pretty big change for you. And I'd really actually like if you can focus a little bit about kind of the different approaches to innovation and maybe give some insight into what you see would be the right incentives for health systems, right? Not to necessarily be innovative, but to make different decisions about technology adoption and really changing their business processes. Because a lot of what we're talking about, you know, technology is the easy part, right? It's the business side that, that becomes difficult. So I'd love to dive a little bit into that. Yeah, there's, there's no question that it is challenging to sort of move the battleship of healthcare. You know, I mean, healthcare providers, we have a long, rich, hundreds of year history uh, that has led us to doing things the way that we do them today. And, you know, and technology has come along, you know, in the last whatever, you know, 40 years or 30 years, and and really upset the, the apple cart. So you see providers, you know, sometimes resisting change, you know, resisting innovation, because we know what we're doing. And yet the world is changing all around us. I mean, you can see it, you know, in retail services and telehealth and, you know, the role of, of payers and pharmacies and others. So, I mean, we've got a whole core of traditional medicine, bricks and mortar, you know, et cetera. And then we've got this overlay of everything else that's going on around us. So it's, you know, it's challenging to know how to manage innovation, whether you're talking about about a small office practice, whether you're talking about a digital health company, whether you're talking about a big healthcare, you know, institution, you know, be it private, public, et cetera. You know, I, I've been interested in this sort of innovation, as I said at the beginning, for, for a long time, right? And, but it, it really was a personal journey, you know, a personal enthusiasm that led me to get involved in all these things. But for many years, I found myself as the only provider in the room. You know, the only physician or certainly the only practicing primary care physician, you know, now there's a half a dozen others around the country that are involved in different entities and, and, and efforts that are going on. But I think one of the challenges is the what's in it for me. You know, how do you incentivize engagement in this kind of innovation? You know, you have to get to that point of having a burning platform. And I think, you know, that the, the entire house of medicine is burning now. So now it's, it's hard to say that this is the one thing we need to focus on. I mean, we keep talking about, you know, how to digitally transform, you know, organizations, but, you know, when you're a solo doc or a small practice or a community health center, digital transformation is not the first thing on your mind. So I think what we need to do is we need to figure out how to engage people. So clearly, large health systems are engaged in this. Clearly, you know, organized medicine, the AMA, you know, some of the larger, you know, medical societies are starting to get involved. But we really need to encourage that and figure out ways to get people there. Because otherwise, what you do is, is you have people going back after the fact and saying, you know, well, I wasn't in the room when that decision was made. I don't like that. I think the ONC needs another delay or Congress needs to change their mind or this or that. You know, so it, it really slows us down. I mean, if we want to innovate, the most efficient way to do that is to have all the parties at the table, you know, part of the discussion moving forward. So, you know, and of course, we've talked a lot about high tech, but you know, well, NCVHS is another, you know, organization, another entity opportunity for systems and providers to be involved. And I know that there is, there is some of that. Sutter has a seat there, Kaiser, you know, others. So I, I think it is important that we stay focused on driving the policy changes in the right direction, because it's those policies, especially when they come out as requirements, that really drive change, right? And that change often involves innovation. Now, sometimes that's reactive, resistant innovation, like, you know, how can I avoid doing this? Or how can I, you know, squeak by with the minimum necessary? And then sometimes it's, it's more, you know, broad, positivistic change and innovation. And I think that what we need to do as an industry is to keep looking for the positives, highlighting them, celebrating them, baking them into the next cycle of policy changes and requirements. And again, I mean, I haven't been at this too long. I mean, 20, 30 years, but I appreciate that it's getting better, you know, that the cycle of standards development, 
policy changes, innovation. People are really thinking about how can we do this in a consistent, repeatable, reliable fashion that will continue to move the, the ball down the road um, in, in a positive way. I think in the past, the sense I have is that it wasn't quite so coordinated. Uh, so, you know, but we clearly, we need both carrots and sticks. You know, you need to pull people along and then you need to sort of push them the, the last bit. Uh, and um, there's a lot of discussion of this at high tech. A lot of our high tech recommendations uh, that we've really been asked to produce have to do with what are the policy levers that can be used to move this forward. And it almost always comes back to CMS, right? It's like, well, if CMS says it has to happen, then it's going to happen. You know, and we're seeing this. We're seeing this with the latest CMS interoperability rules where they are pushing forward with fire, you know, with the need for payers to be able to exchange. And as CMS does it within this limited set of payers where they have real control, you know, it will then inevitably get picked up across across the industry. So I think that's that's really important. Yeah, definitely. Joss, um, what about the health systems that are members of DaVinci? Are there any kind of common attributes or factors that lead some systems to be more open to engaging, um, you know, with fire adoption and standards development or? Yeah, I think there are some commonalities. And I and I, I think, you know, some of the points that Stephen make, makes are really important here. I, I do think, you know, and we, we've seen it in the change with the current burden reduction rule that dropped compared to the one two years ago from CMS. CMS has been um, an amazing lever in the industry to shift the business model of healthcare to value away from fee-for-service, right? And so I think that if we think about the attributes of the folks that are sort of at the head of the curve and really keenly looking to invest in moving us forward to more real-time interactions, because that's really what we're talking about is how do we move from, you know, today, which is often a 90 day more or, you know, lag on where you're getting sort of the type of clinical information or claims information that that tell you sort of what's happening inside your system. The organizations that recognize the need to speed that up and to get to real-time interactions and chattiness with their business partners. And there's a lot that I just said right there, right? They're not payer provider sort of antagonistic relationships. These are business partners working together in common goals you know, maybe not always completely simpatico, but this idea that you're in a relationship that both parties have risk and reward involved in it. And so I would say one of the big attributes with the folks who are involved in DaVinci is there are organizations that are further along in their transformation to move to at-risk contracting and value-based care. Often they have an ACO component to them. They really understand the need to own and master the information that flows to their system about their members, right? And so this idea of, I, I think in some ways, them almost being separate than their technology decisions around data warehousing and data collection, I think is what brings organizations like Sutter and our, really our friends in the Northwest, uh, MultiCare Connected, and the folks in Washington State really to the table, right? Providence is, you know, really sort of ahead of so many organizations in the industry around value-based care. They really own their information and they, and they rely on their vendor partners. And that's really powerful. So I think the second attribute is, is that they're willing to go first. They're willing to experiment with their business partners and they're willing to pilot and do early adoption for work. And that's really important because the majority of providers, you know, like Steven's talking about, are not folks that have IT budgets or capital to bring to projects like this. So the power of moving to, to sort of these network solutions and to this ability to be able to have API-based data exchanges, it makes it easier for the little guy or the less, you know, capital intensive person to be able to actually invest and get these solutions. But what these bigger organizations are doing are bringing their vendor partners and sort of kind of prodding them and pushing them along faster than the regulatory landscape, right? So we now see Epic talking about the fact that they're going to be implementing DaVinci guides in, you know, the first half of this year, which, you know, for both um, around our burden reduction guides. And, and we know the reason they're there is because we have DaVinci hospital systems and payers sort of pulling them along to develop their assets, right? And to keep them sort of moving um, with the progress as opposed to being worked around, right? By the vendor community. So I think that that this, uh, this sort of attribute of, of being people that understand sort of the changing business model, I think being large enough scale. But I want to point out something really important. 
I found Stephen through conversations with folks as we were really trying to figure out who those provider voices we were in the industry. And Sonner hasn't necessarily been our biggest implementer, but the ability to tap into an organization, not just Stephen, but his colleagues like um, Dr. Ed Yu and a number of his folks over on the quality side to pull in to be those brains that are in day-to-day operational environments to move all of us forward as an industry, even if they're not the people sort of rolling up the sleeves and writing the code or deploying the code first in the industry, there's a role for you, even if you're not in one of those large health systems, if you're someone like Steve that really has a passion for this, there's a place in this ecosystem for you to spend your time and to give your expertise. So I I just wanna make sure that when we're talking, we're not just saying, oh, it's only the big guys that can play because really when you look at things like our clinical advisory council, there's a place for grad students to play, nurses to play, pharmacists to play, to be able to come and sort of provide their expertise in these really early days of sort of defining standards that I think are really going to be the way that we're transporting clinical data for, you know, the next couple decades. So super exciting. And, 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 and again, you know, lots of opportunities for people to play, whether they're an early implementer or whether they're just a, a SME bringing their expertise. So um, thanks, Joss. That was uh, absolutely, you know, spot on. And I think, you know, thinking about standards, right? So there's definitely this kind of important movement in the industry forward, right, to have this connection between standards development and policy. We have seen CMS and ONC very much involved, right, starting to get involved with the standards development organizations at HL7. Um, You know, we're starting to see a little bit of that at NCPDP as well. And I think there's a real opportunity, right, for stakeholders to also take part in the standards work, whether it's through joining the fire accelerators, we've talked about DaVinci, you know, we know there's plenty of others, Gravity Project, Codex, all the different ones that are out there, and also participating in work groups, right, at NCPDP. So, Stephen, I'd like to t- have you talk a little bit about kind of your view on how policy and standards relate to each other and why it's important for stakeholders to really dedicate resources to engage. I think Jocelyn put it really well that, you know, when we have work groups where you have a lot of diverse voices, they are able to make progress and they're able to really identify the problems. And it's that problem identification, you know, what are the pain points, what are the opportunities that leads to the evolution of standards? I mean, the standards communities themselves can get very, very technical, but it's critically important to bring end users, you know, be they patients, providers, payers, et cetera, into that discussion to make sure that the standards organizations are solving the right problems. You know, I, me- I mentioned this a little bit earlier in terms of my work in HITAC and USCDI. I think it's a great example. You know, the first iteration of USCDI was really a restatement of, of a standard, the common clinical data set that had previously been named in prior regulation. And, you know, with a couple of minor tweaks for USCDI v1. And then they brought together a lot of stakeholders and, and collected public comment to define what needed to be in the next version and the next version. And now it's an annual repeatable process that, that people know is going to happen. Um, and what we've done over the past few cycles is we've really brought HL7 into the discussion, you know, and uh, and made sure that as we add new data elements to the USCDI standard, that the fire resources, that the implementation guides are there to support them. And it's really become now a requirement. If you're going to add anything, it has to have the supporting standards to go with it. And then there's also this annual cycle. So, you know, we say, well, gee, this is really needed in USCDI. And then HL7 says, okay, then we got to work on this implementation guide. And so we actually changed the timing of when those guides come out in their annual cycle so that there is this expected flow from USCDI to uh, HL7, then back to the next published version of USCDI. And then there's, on top of that, there's the standards version advancement process, what they call the SVAP, where a, a new standard can be named before it's required as a signal to the industry that this is what's coming. And there's no promise as to exactly when it's coming because, you know, the rules change really in response to what's going on around us. Uh, so it's, it's a long cycle, 
but there are these chain links in the chain, you know, that goes from problem identification, standards evolution, you know, to the the availability of the new standards for implementation by vendors, real world use. And then at a certain point, there will be another cycle of rulemaking, you know, or legislation that's going to bake those in permanently. So I think, again, standards development is critical. The engagement of diverse stakeholder communities in that process is critical. And I think it's getting better and better. Yeah, I think as the chair of the NCPDP Board of Trustees, I have to say I'm a little biased. I think it's a huge missed opportunity, right, if organizations don't engage in standards development. And, you know, people always say, oh, it takes so long, but what they're missing is those steps in between that you just mentioned. So I think that's great. So um, I know we could probably keep going on and on. Uh, This has been such a great uh, discussion. And um, really, just as we go to close out, I want to just check and see if our guests have any final kind of messages or call to actions. Um, so Stephen, we'll start with you. I mean, so I, I see TEFCA as a once in a decade opportunity, you know, to really take nationwide interoperability to the next level. We have lots of engagement, lots of enthusiasm, but it's still pretty much a niche discussion. I mean, if I went and asked my neighbor down the street what they thought about TEFCA, they would not have the first idea what I was talking about. So I think there really is a need for more broad public discussion. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion around some of the other issues coming out of 21st Century Cures, information sharing requirements, for example. But I think we do need to to make people more aware of this. I work in California, where there's been a multi-year effort by a lot of parties to advance interoperability. But they're looking in the rearview mirror at 20th century HIE technology, as opposed to looking forward, because there's the belief on some people's parts that TEFCA is not going to happen or it's not going to happen fast enough. And we have to go with the old reliable, you know, Chevy rather than pulling out the Tesla and really, you know, turning it on. So um, I do hope that, you know, we have more of a public discussion, more of a public awareness that this is happening and so that people can move towards it instead of having to be dragged along. Great. Joss, final word before we close out. So let's be clear, I agree with Stephen, I would say like 98% of the time, and I think he's spot on there. I think that this idea of sort of, we are the drivers of the innovation that's happening, and that really I've seen, at least in my time in healthcare, a shift towards the industry setting forward where we're headed and ONC and CMS providing alignment, right? And I think that that's incredibly powerful. I think that SVAP is completely a, a sign that ONC is listening to the industry about not sticking us under these, you know, these, these ceilings of technology that you can't advance and really hearing that, yeah, we need a floor so everybody can get and get together and work together and things work, but don't stifle innovation by creating artificial ceilings. So that's and the promise of that is fantastic. I agree with Pooja as well, you know, this ability for you to figure out inside your organization, where should you play, which things are most critical that you need to be thought leaders on, you know, either as an implementer or as the person coming and bringing subject matter expertise into the industry, I think is incredibly important. And I agree. I, I think that we are literally at an inflection point and that we have all of the building blocks in place right now to be successful and sort of it's our game, I think, as an industry to execute. And if we don't, I I I I I would I would not want to be in a place where we're having to have people come in and get fined in order to be compliant. I think that this is a place, and if we look at every other industry, sort of the move to APIs and the move to real time has occurred in the people that win, the people that advance, the people that really, you know, I think sort of create the arc of their career or their organization or solve real world problems, um, which at the end of the day is what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to reduce burden on our providers. We're trying to make sure we make patients healthier. You know, if we go back to the quintuple um, aim that Stephen started with at the beginning of our conversation, you know, it's it's on us to make the change happen. And I think that, you know, people need to figure out where to plug in to, to, uh, to be able to support things at their highest, best purpose, right, to, to help us all get there. Great. Well, I just want to thank you both. This has been a great conversation today. And thank you for joining us. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. Uh, just a friendly reminder to our new listeners that you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or really whatever platform you use to pick up your podcast, including the Healthcare Now radio and the podcast channel. 
Um, we also post our videos of our podcast episodes, uh, sometimes longer versions, on our YouTube channels. Uh, and don't forget, Health IT is a dish best served hot. Is it a challenge to stay on top of interoperability regulations and the flurry of activity with fire accelerators? Email us at interopoutlook at pucp.com to learn more about our new Interoperability Outlook subscription monitoring service. 